Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us. I just finished talking with Ian Bogost about his great new book, Alien Phenomenology, or What It's Like to Be a Thing. This was published in 2012 with the University of Minnesota Press. The book introduces and engages the problems of a field that's come to be known as object-oriented ontology. This is, roughly speaking, a group of people who are writing about, thinking about, and producing really, really what I take to be very interesting work that takes on the problem of what it is to think about, live with, understand, and write about things, objects, units, as Bogos calls them, out of a necessary relationship with human beings. And so if we look at the fact that we tend to take for granted that knowledge of things in the universe is only important and is only um, relevant and describable in terms of the relationship with human beings, if we try to challenge that basic fundamental premise, how does that open up new ways of understanding objects, things, units in the world, living with them, and practicing the humanities, philosophy, history, social sciences, etc., etc. What the book does is introduce these ideas and propose a really, really innovative and interesting way through in a language and using a narrative that's extraordinarily pleasurable to read. It's very, very writerly and it's accessible and interesting and you'll learn something from it, regardless of whether you come to it with any background in or pre-existing knowledge of philosophy, object-oriented ontologies, anything like that. So it's really a pleasure to read. There are all kinds of examples in this book that really embody and demonstrate the kind of knowledge through juxtaposition and exploration of universes that Bogos talks about. So he talks about music, he talks about video games, ace of cakes, television shows, computers. There are all kinds of really fascinating case studies in here. For me, personally, this is a, a way of thinking with and thinking through things and objects as part of our understanding that I think could really supplement and change, um, really, I think, transform the way we as scholars of science studies, STS, history of science, philosophy of science, sociology of science, do and assume materiality and material culture in our work. I think there's a real opportunity here for adding a very new perspective into the way we understand and think about things in our histories and our stories and our narratives. And this is one of the reasons, um, one of the many reasons I was really excited to have Ian on the channel. Um, and I'm, just, I'm really thrilled to share this with you. And so I really enjoyed the conversation and the book. I hope that you do too. I hope you have a chance to read the book. And in particular, I'm really excited to bring this to an STS audience. So enjoy. Um, I hope it gives you as much food for thought as it's given me. And thanks for listening. We're here today to talk with Ian Bogost about his new book, Alien Phenomenology, or What It's Like to Be a Thing. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Ian, and thanks so much for making time to talk with me today about a book that I'm actually really, really excited about. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So, Ian, can you start us off by saying just a little bit about yourself and your background? Um, your work <laughs> combines the practice and language of video game design with those of philosophy and comp lit. So how did you come to this particular combination of fields? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I've come to anything yet, but uh, I've certainly collected a number of different fields, which I'm, you know, holding hostage in, in my basement or something. Um, I mean, when, when I was first in school, um, in, in undergrad, I, I knew that I was interested in, in either computer science or in philosophy. And um, that was a choice uh, at the time, really. You know, was, you could do one or, or the other. And... Um, I had, you know, I had been engaged with computing for years and years as a kid, and and uh, you know, I kind of wanted to explore what the computer could do, and 
and, and I was already doing that, um, but I was also always really enamored of, of, of literature and arts and, and philosophy and, um, and, and so forth. So it was kind of an, an identity crisis. Um, but what I ended up doing was, was working, you know, working professionally all the way through school, almost all the way through school. Um, in uh, in the technology industry, and and then I figured, well, I'll, I'll never get a job as a philosopher, so I'll I'll do I'll do this philosophy, and I ended up doing you know complete too, um, because it's it's a thing that you know uh, I would like to pursue. It's 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 dear to my heart and, and all that. And I guess the the irony is that um, I did get a job as a as a philosopher, sort of um, at the end of the day, anyway. Uh, but but to me, the whole thing was always this negotiation between. Um, Doing computing, doing work with computing, um, being a computationalist, um, being an engineer, and being a humanist, uh, and in particular, someone interested in uh, a lot of very abstract um, questions and in theory, um, as much as also in specific examples of um, uh, of, uh, of of human culture. You know, most most notably uh, poetry and games and uh, and photography and these other areas that, that that I talk about in in this book and in and in others. So I, I guess what I'm saying is that my whole my whole career um, has been an attempt to try to find connections between computing and uh, and the arts. And you know, I, I think I've had some success uh, doing that. I've also been really fortunate to have been working at exactly the right moment in time to get some traction with it. But I'm I'm also not confident that I feel like I belong anywhere, which is maybe why I hedge. You know, to to answer your your your, your question um, more directly, um, in in the sense that you know, when one has enough fields, one has no field, and, and kind of doesn't go anywhere. And, and I'm I'm certainly at risk of, of of being that you know that that sort of of person who is who's kind of neither fish nor fowl, uh, uh, nor nor monkey nor hot wing, you know, whatever. Well, but I, th- I think one of the things that the book does really well is really bring together um, what you've mentioned as these very, in one way, very different um, kinds of training, but also I, I think the book is evidence of the fact that very, very complementary kinds of training. And in some ways, um, it's better, I, I think, you know, from the perspective of just one reader, which is all I can offer, um, for having the kind of freedom that it can speak to a wide range of different kinds of people doing very different kinds of things in different kinds of fields. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess one way to, 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 to kind of um, riff off what you're saying is that I sort of don't care to make um, amends or, or, to, or to impress anyone in particular. Um, you know, I mean, there, I hang out with some philosophers and, you know, this, this book gets shelved in philosophy and I, I like it when, when that happens. And, I, you know, I feel sometimes like a philosopher, but, but I also don't. And, and you know, I, I, I have a computer science appointment as, as part of my job at Georgia Tech and I hang out with those folks and I like that too, but I also kind of don't belong there. And, um, and, and so, you know, but it's fine. Like I'm doing the thing I'm doing and, um, and I've been you know fortunate to find a little kind of bubble in which to do that. And I, I guess one of the things that's happening maybe is that, that there's interest in that there's interest in these, these alternatives and, 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 you know, we've kind of reached the end of, of disciplinarity, um, and and the, the whole idea of, of kind of everyone creating their own little world, their own little universe in, in which their work makes sense and others can come visit them like like it's a zoo, you know, and they're kind of looking at the exotic, strange creatures that are doing this bizarre work that doesn't make any sense. But but then it does, actually, as long as you kind of find an angle to, to look at it from. I'm, I'm, I'm quite at one with that. I don't, I don't feel um, oppressed or anxious uh, about about this problem of belonging. Um, but at the same time, I'm very aware of it. You know, it's very, it's very much on my mind. Um, and I don't have, you know, I, I teach at Georgia tech where we don't have a philosophy department or a an English department or even a computer science department. I mean, we sort of do, but everything is all very askew here. And I, I kind of like that, you know, the, the idea that there isn't really, there isn't really place, uh, anymore that, co- that corresponds with, um, these long-standing traditions in, 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 in disciplines, and instead we can we can do whatever we want. We can still do historical work. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying we need to throw everything away, mm-hmm. but that we can um, we can find our way uh, in, in, in a new fashion, and and um, 
and uh, you know pr- projects like this are uh, you know they're, they're one example of uh, kind of what happens when you let go maybe you let go of those those anxieties about where something belongs or who it's for and just kind of let it happen now one um if not a field and a pretty coherent area of study that the book um, speaks to specifically is a larger literature that's often called object-oriented ontology. And and you mentioned this in the book. So let's start off um, by getting actually, or let's start off in our uh, travel actually into the body of the book by by starting here and talking about this. So what brought you from this constellation of different kinds of questions and fields that you've been exploring specifically to the set of problems and issues of object-oriented ontology that really form in some ways a, a heart of the work that the book here does? Yeah, and and it, it, strangely enough, there's a very very particular answer to this to this question. Um, back when I was working on my first uh, book, which is called Unit Operations, and which gets some some play in, in alien phenomenology, um, there was a new a new book by um, a then unknown American philosopher working in Cairo named Graham Harmon, mm-hmm. uh, and, and this book was called Tool Being, and it was it turned out to be his his first book on. Um, this kind of unique and, and controversial reading of, of Heidegger's tool analysis in, in which uh, the, the properties that, that Heidegger attributes to Dasein, um, Harman argues, apply to any, any entity. And I had, I had been incredibly intrigued by this, by this project and this, this idea of an object-oriented philosophy, largely by happenstance, uh, the happenstance being that I was writing about connections between philosophy and computing. Um, the object-oriented term is a is a, is a term found in computing. It's it's a term that Latour and, and Harman kind of um, uh, appropriated uh, for different for different purposes. Um, and uh, and so I you know I happened upon this work and I, I was eager to, to see it published and it was late and I was you know kind of anxious to see if there was something here I could cite and then finally came out and I was really enthralled by the argument and you know cited the book um, Harman's book in in, in mine. And then a few years passed, and kind of by random happenstance, um, Graham got in touch with me, just kind of ego surfing, I think. You know, like you can go to Amazon these days and look up your book or your name, and in addition to getting book results, you get uh, citation results, you get, you know, look inside kind of results. And, and so he found this, this mention of, um, of his book, and he got in touch with me, and, and we started corresponding just about whatever. I mean, nothing in particular philosophy and games and, 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 and random stuff. And, you know, he and I had a few other uh, points of commonality and, and he, he had worked as a sports writer in graduate school and this is an additional connection between sports studies and, and, and game studies and you know, a lot of those kinds of topics. So, um, so there was that connection. And then um, later I began working on um, a project with Nick Montfort um, that we called Platform Studies, which is a I mean, it's an approach, really, but but it's also the name of a book series grounded in that approach that he and I edited at the MIT Press. And Platform Studies is about the um, the relationship between the hardware and software design of computer systems and the kind of creative applications to which they can be put. Uh, Nick and I had this uh, perspective on 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 you know digital media or new media studies, whatever you want to call it, that there wasn't enough. Um, detailed investigation into the the technical uh, behavior of of computer systems, especially in writing drawn from a humanistic or social scientific perspective. And we wanted to uh, initiate an an invitation for more of that. We wrote a book, um, first book in the series on the Atari video computer system called Racing the Beam. Uh, And, you know, I realized after after writing that book, which is all about the the technical... um, design of, of the Atari and how it influenced game design. And, and it's a subject that uh, appears in Alien Phenomenology a couple times as well. Mm-hmm. Um, after writing that book, I realized that I was actually interested in more than just the sort of secret life of computers. I was kind of interested in the secret life of anything. Um, and so I, I eventually had the opportunity to connect those two worlds um, at a conference in 2008 uh, called the the philosophy of computer games, which is a, a fairly regular affair that happens uh, just about every year now, and they they invited me to do a keynote, and I chose to do uh, the phenomenology of, of, of video games, and I, and I talked about sort of the preliminary thoughts um, with with a specific interest in in games, but the preliminary thoughts that that kind of led to 
their, the expansion of theme uh, that became uh, the Alien Phenomenology books. So that, that, that was sort of the origin story of how I, how I connected my existing interests um, with, with new ones. And, and you know, I, I think there are other factors here, one of them being that the rise of speculative realism and object-oriented ontology in philosophy were largely happening online. And I wouldn't say it's the first time that this has happened by any means, but within the philosophy community, uh, it, it was r- relatively rare for a substantial amount of chatter to be taking place on blogs and Twitter and so forth. Uh, and without that, it would have been a little bit harder for me to uh, to connect with this community uh, because I, you know, I'm, I'm shuffling between other other communities, and I, I don't go to the you know the philosophy conferences and, and so forth. Um, so that's uh, that's kind of the the way that, that I connected uh, my my prior work to this new work, and it was very much a very natural kind of process of discovery that um, actually, why should I be limiting myself to uh, the apparatus of computing? I mean, that, that, those are great, and I'm still interested in that. We're still publishing books and platform studies and all. Um, but there's all sorts of other stuff in the world worthy of the same kind of consideration. And I was interested in doing more of that and inviting more of that and, and maybe translating some of the object-oriented thinking that was still a pretty deeply... Um, grounded in, in metaphysics and, and in traditions that you, you kind of have to be a philosopher to understand, making those more accessible to a broader readership, um, an academic readership primarily, but maybe to anyone. And I, I guess the jury will be out on whether or not I, I, I've succeeded at, at writing a philosophy book that, that, that almost anyone can read. Well, so the narrative itself opens in New Mexico, and it opens with New Mexico, a range of different kinds of objects and aliens. This introduction, and this is the um, first chapter called Alien Phenomenology, it introduces one of the central questions that wind up motivating the rest of the book. Why do we ignore stuff? Um, stuff, things, objects, and scholarship, poetry, science, business, as anything more than a way to continue talking about humans? Is there a way to think and live with stuff in the world that doesn't reduce it to that which concerns people, but understands it and lives with it on its own terms? Now, there are all kinds of analogies that we can talk about um, between this set of questions and the kinds of questions that actually motivate the kinds of people that work in a field that I kind of grew up in, which is history and history of different local communities and their epistemologies in particular, but we'll save that for the end in case uh, we have time to get to it. Um, What I'd like to open with, though, is understanding that this is one of, at least for me as a reader, I take to be um, the motivating questions. This brings us to the work of a thinker who actually doesn't often come up um, in the context of discussions about things and objects for science studies in the same way that other people that you talk about, for example, Bruno Latour, um, Graham Harmon to some extent increasingly does, um, but that very much motivates one of the central foundational elements of the kinds of questions that you're talking about, and that is Quentin Mayasu. And forgive, mm-hmm. my, um, forgive my pronunciation uh, of everything. Is that that's right. That's correct. <laughs> so you, you um, introduce very early in the book um, Quentin Mayasu and his idea of correlationism or his engagement with the idea of correlationism, and this motivates much of what comes after. So can you start us off? Because... Um, many listeners may not be familiar with his work, just kind of briefly explaining what is that idea all about and how does that shape how you think about your work in this book? Right. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot going on in, in, in Mayasu's um, uh, thinking, but the, 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 one of the elements that, that um, I've sort of cherry picked <laughs> uh, from him, and, and this is a, this is a, maybe a common way to use Mayasu's thinking um, is this, this uh, attitude, uh, kind of post-Kant, uh, in uh, in uh, in philosophy and in theory, that um, being only exists as a as a correlate between the mind and the world. I mean, this is this is what we get from Kant that that we can't know uh, if things really exist, so we only know that they exist for us and forevermore. Uh, any kind of conversation we have about the external world is really a conversation about our minds and our idea of what it means for something uh, to exist. Um, and so there's this kind of trump card that's been played uh, in, in, uh, in philosophy uh, and in, in, the, um, in the fields that it influences that, you know, that, of course, the natural sciences and, and, and engineering find completely preposterous, you know, namely that any time the real world um, uh, arises in conversation, the... Um, 
the correlationist is uh, obliged to add a kind of codicil. This is this is one of the arguments may assume makes this codicil at the end. Well, well for us, right? You know, um, and and one of his examples in um, uh, in in this book called After Finitude, uh, which which made Mayasu sort of famous uh, 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 as a philosopher, is is that you know if you say uh, some historical events occurred a certain number of years before. Uh, the emergence of humans, then the, the the correlationist must say, oh well, yes, you know, for the human scientist or uh, for the social theorist, that's the case because we are, you know, constructing that knowledge and, and the way that we understand a historical event or, or or a moment in time is always sieved through the uh, uh, the, the perspective of, of a particular construction of of, of social knowledge. Uh, so you know, you, you could see this as a sort of prison, if you'd like, that um, that, that that we we can never get outside of our own minds, and therefore we stop trying, and instead we we, we begin kind of playing this game of cards with ourselves, uh, in in which we're we're comfortable with that game. Uh, and we can kind of even one up each other in that game, and sort of I'm, you know, I'm more socially constructionist than you are, uh, and and this, you know, whether or not it's it's true or right, uh, is actually less interesting to me than the idea that it's boring. This is this is no longer an interesting way of thinking about the world, um, and so while the while the scientist might say, well, you know, the, the kind of relativism uh, of the uh, of the postmodern philosopher uh, is is damaging to to, to knowledge. Uh, an industry. Uh, in, instead, we can also simply say, actually, um, it's just not. It's just not interesting anymore. It's just no longer interesting to constantly return every conversation, every object, everything that we might discuss, back to the the social construction of a discourse in which um, it emerges. Uh, and so, I'm. You know, this is this is me on top of Meiasu, but that initial invitation uh, to understand this notion of a correlate uh, of of being as a problem of access. Um, and that we, we don't have access to being. We only have access to this correlate between our minds and the world without. So that is all that we can discuss. This is a, this is a subject that, um, that, that he uh, introduces in, in, in Afrofinitude. And, and, and it's become um, you know, quite influential in, in, um, in speculative realist thinking, even among those who don't adopt the rest of, of Mayasu's position, some of which are, are, are quite curious indeed. Great. So thank you so much. So after talking about Mayasu and then taking us through some of the other um, people whose work you're engaged with here, including Harmon and his work on Heidegger, Whitehead, Latour, you introduce the idea of flat ontology from the work, I think, of Levi Bryant. And this is a way of, of thinking about the world that grants all things the same ontological status. I mention that because then you go on from there to introduce your really interesting idea stemming from that of tiny ontology. And this is, again, one of these key concepts that's going to motivate the kinds of analyses that we see later in the book. So would you talk a little bit about what is tiny ontology and how does that motivate um, the kinds of uh, work that you're doing in this part of the book? Right. So, you know, the, the idea of flat ontology, which uh, which arises, um, you know, via Bryant, uh, via Delanda, uh, really, um, you might summarize as, um, you know, all, all being is the same, that being itself has the same properties, that everything that that is, is in the same way. Um, or, you know, the, the quip I, I give it in the in, in the book uh, is that all things equally exist, which doesn't mean that they exist equally. So it's not a value judgment, but that when it comes to being, all being is the same. Um, so that's flat ontology. And, and even uh, even Levi Bryant is um, a bit unsure of whether or not there's like how, how bumpy flat ontology gets to be, right? Uh, Harman has his two-part object, the, the sensual and the real object. And so so even fundamentally in, in, in his ontology, there's this kind of mumpiness. Uh, and Bryant, too, is, is unsure about whether, you know, like ideas or, or, or fictions um, should be extant as much as, um, you know, traffic patterns or, 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 or jumbo jets or whatever. But I'm actually completely confident and, 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 and at one with this idea of flat ontology and sort of emphasize that further to emphasize that flatness further that all being is the same um i don't see why we need the two-dimensionality of flatness right so if you kind of imagine this you know the spatial metaphor that's being used to explain flat ontology that of the the line um then how could we how could we show that it's even denser and simpler than than a line on which everything rests at the same level uh, of being well there's the, the the point and you know the point is the um 
is the metaphor that motivates this this idea of tiny ontology that all we need to say about being is sort of one word is and and that's kind of it you know that all if all being really is the same um then let's not muck about over uh you know drawing out a nice timeline in which we can put um a porcupines and coffee cups and uh, cobra commander and so forth that we can actually condense all of that stuff into this one incredibly dense black hole like point and that's where being lives and that's the that's the best way to understand uh being so it's actually quite a small um alteration to the the premise of of, of flat ontology if anything maybe just like a different perspective or, or another way of of emphasizing and intensifying this commitment to a to a flat ontology, and, and I think I'm a bit unique among the object-oriented ontology crew in holding such a, a kind of perversely um, simple take on on being and, and such a flat version of being. Well, you you take this forward um, in the this context of this first chapter, and this is um, I'll, I'm going to ask you about one more major concept that you introduce here before we move on to the next chapter because it is important, and you do that by urging us to think about, or rather, perhaps stating that you're going to think about objects and things not by using the terms objects and things, but rather by introducing this idea of the unit. Now, I know this is something that you've written about before, um, but you describe here a way of thinking about this constellation of things as units, as units that behave and interact through what you call operation. So we can simply state units operate rather than saying maybe a thing exists, and that this unit operation is always fractal. Because this fractal nature of unit operation seems really, really important to understanding what you're doing here in a larger context of you know, thinking about parts and wholes, thinking about how to make this idea work in the context of um, what STS scholars you know, frequently think of as networks. This is actually quite different from that, and I think different in a really interesting and a really productive way that opens up very different kinds of questions for STS scholars, and perhaps you know, speaking personally for historians of science in particular. So all that said, in order for listeners to to, um, to understand what I'm talking about, can you briefly describe? Um, and I know being brief is kind of unfair to ask you to ask of you because you have written about this extensively and thought about this extensively. Units operate, and we can think about this in a fractal way. What's yeah. going on there? Right. So it, I think it's pretty easy to get through this um, briefly. Um, I mean, unit is is a, a word that I've been using for for ten years now as a as a kind of alternative to. Uh, a thing or or a subject um, or, or a system, and what I like about it is that it 's a little more uh, ambiguous and a little less charged it 's not so caught up in in different discourses um, you know object has this subject object problem, and thing is kind of you know all, all stuck in, in 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 heidegger to me and um, and then in unit operations um, uh, the, the the book called unit operations that I wrote um, uh, some years ago i 'm also distinguishing between um, objects in the computational sense. So, you know, in, in, in computer science, we have this idea of object-oriented programming, and an object has a particular meaning there. So I, I like UNIT um, mostly for pragmatic reasons. It, it feels like it allows us to talk about this, this kind of thing that exists, because remember that, to me, all things are the same kind of thing, at, at least fundamentally. Uh, and, then, and then it allows us to, to really take that seriously. So the, the kind of notion of operation, of, of behavior... Um, is also connected to the idea of containment, um, and Levi Bryant has this nice, this nice sort of um, frame: uh, weird myriology. Uh, so, myriology is the, uh, the you know the philosophical um, sub the the, the the subset of, of metaphysics that is concerned with uh, the relationship of parts and wholes. And when you take this object-oriented position, a strong, flat ontological or tiny ontological position, you become committed to a very weird idea, and that's the idea that. Things have parts, and things are parts of larger things, but at the same time, those things that are parts of them or that they are parts of are no less a thing than they are, right? So, you know, the, the, the engine on the, on the jumbo jet is no, is no less than, than the jumbo jet itself. Um, or the cells in my body or the organs in my body um, exist in, in, in the same at the same level of being um, as, as I do as, a, as an individual. Um, and so the, the, the idea of a, fract- of, of, uh, a fractal uh, relationship between these things is, is meant to point out that when we attend 
to any one individual unit, the scale of being resets. It's always it's always the same. Now, the reason why we might be concerned with organs or cells rather than humans or or societies and nation states instead of organs, obviously there's there's all sorts of other stuff that's going on. But as far as the original attention, the question of well, why would you be concerned with with this thing over that thing, um, with with the cells over the organs or the or the organs over the over the culture uh, in which the beings that uh, uh, that, that surround them uh, 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 comport themselves. Uh, those questions can't be answered uh, ontologically. Those are no longer uh, ontological questions that we, you know we have uh, other fields in which we, we we need to engage in order to make those choices. But be, but by taking this strong uh, flat ontological position with respect to them, the playing field gets sort of leveled. Um, and what I mean by that is that anything is of potential intrigue and interest. And we no longer can assume that the largest thing or the thing with the most effects, this is kind of Latour's argument, right? The thing with the most effects is the one that we should pay attention to. Um, or even the thing with the least effects, right? Which is one of the directions that, um, you know, critical theory as born out of identity politics tends to, uh, tends to operate. That we actually can't make any simple distinction about why we might be concerned with one thing over another. Rather, we have to make um, either arbitrary choices or we have to be motivated by specific questions and problems. Um, now, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but I will say that this is a somewhat controversial position for reasons you can probably already imagine, namely that it would, it would seem to some to be exclusionary or to be risky or you know, to be violent even. Uh, but I see it as just the opposite, that, that once, we, once we recognize this sort of fractal nature of being, then anything we look at, anything we attend to as, as um, uh, either as philosophers or just as ordinary people operating in the world, um, we can do the same kind of work with. We can engage at the same depth and the same level of, uh, of commitment that we might uh, previously have reserved um, for, you know, quote unquote, things that really matter. Um, so, you know, that that idea of a kind of weird muriology in which the, the behavior or the interactions or the operations of units of being um, are all fair game. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the invitation that that my my project um, makes, and uh, and I think it's just a it's a really big invitation. It's one that I'm not even sure I have yet uh, taken the book up on, right? But 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 I do see it as uh, just kind of throwing the doors open and and saying, let's just get all this over with. All at, all at once, and, and, and anything that we can think of, or even the things that we can't, um, those are just as potentially uh, interesting uh, as, uh, as the, the, the kind of tried and true uh, subjects of, um, uh, of, of critical inquiry, uh, hu- human society, or, 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 or the, 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 the physical environment, or, or what have you. And I think, and I'll just um, throw this out there, and then we can move on to ontography, but I think this is one of the really exciting potential points of interest um, and that I hope historians take up, actually, because this is a way, this is an opportunity to really redefine what context means and what culture can mean and can look like. And, and these are two things that historians tend to fetishize, right? Context, context, cultural, cultural context. Well, you're giving us here a way to, and, and the work that you're engaging with is giving us a way to, I think, redefine and reimagine what context can look like from the perspective of these yeah, yeah. I mean, if I go back to just, if I'll just, I'll just indulge yeah, you briefly, but I mean, if I go back to this sort of origin story, this, you know, I was working on this Atari book, um, the thing that got me, the kind of the hook that, 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 um, that lured me in to, to this way of thinking about um, metaphysics more, more broadly, um, the, the Atari is a very weird way of, of interacting with the television. And I won't go into the details, but it, it's, it's strange. It's unlike any other computer. And, and as I was studying it, and then as, as I, you know, I got involved in programming the, the Atari, and I make games for the, the Atari still for some reason. And so I, you know, I've really kind of lived this experience with the Atari and the television. And, and I realized, gosh, there's this whole other world um, in which the television and this, this you know, 35-year-old um, outdated video game system, they're having this conversation with each other. They're, they're kind of interacting. They have their whole... This whole little world, this whole universe, this microcosm of amazing stuff is happening and has been happening for decades right under our noses. And we just don't notice. Uh, we, don't, we don't attend to that. Um, and, you know, so that kind of realization, I think, is, is just constant for me now. Um, and so I, I definitely think that this invitation uh, applies to almost anything, anything in which you're looking at things that 
are in are, are, are interacting with other things, which is just to say everything. Right. So this actually brings us really nicely to um, this next part of the book. And this is a part of the book where you introduce and give some really, really fabulous and interesting examples of what you call ontography and what others um, that you're drawing on have called ontography. So for listeners who have never read the book or heard about this, can you explain what's ontography and what's it doing here um, in the context of the work that you're trying to do? Yeah, uh, so you're right to point out that ontography is a term now that several of us use for, with different meanings, which is a little confusing, but kind of fun. Um, for me, ontography means um, you know the the recording of being, the the kind of cataloging of things that exist, and and so for me, part of the project of, of doing this tiny ontological inquiry is exercising the muscle of seeing how much being there there is in the universe, which is something that we tend, um, it's like a muscle we've let atrophy. Um, and so the ontographic process is one of, it could either be a, a, one of creativity or it could be one of, of analysis in, in which we, we look for or we create um, artifacts that are, are kind of like catalogs, like bestiaries of um, the, the vastness and the weirdness and the diversity uh, of, of existence, and, and you know, metaphors are are, are 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 sometimes dangerous, but they're always useful. And you know, if you kind of think about the notion of why we why we think about uh, ecological diversity, and you know that we we want to we want to have rich um, ecosystems full of different kinds of life in order that they might thrive better together. I, I, I ontography makes the same argument, but with, with without the the requirement that the things that we that we be concerned with be living things or be natural things, uh, and so you know this is an opportunity to really stretch um, our attention to to allow ourselves to look at and acknowledge the being of things that we would normally ignore mm-hmm. or that we would normally even find repellent, um, and and so you know one of the things that I, that I look for in, in, in some of the examples, um, uh, you know, m- many of which are, are from the arts, uh, is our works that are, um, are trying to, to be indiscriminate in, in their recording of, um, of the world that are, that are more interested in, uh, th- that recording of, of diversity and, uh, and, and kind of embracing the largesse of, of, um, uh, of, of the, the, the strange, um, uh, uh, diverse objects in the universe rather than excluding them, um, uh, with a kind of obvious, you know, shake of the hand. Um, so, you know, I, I, I talk a lot about, um, the photography of, of Stephen Shore in, in the book. He's one of my favorite photographers for all sorts of reasons, but one of which is that he makes these enormously detailed, um, uh, view camera images of relatively ordinary scenes in the in the, in the sixties uh, and seventies, primarily in in, uh, in North America, and everything in the frame is sort of why would you put it there? Why would you why would you have the the cans of uh, of oil and, and and the tires and the and the um, and the street signs and, and what have you? But you know, that's one example of an artistic practice. That, I mean, it's photographic and autographic, uh, but it's an artistic practice. That draws our attention to um, to elements that we might that we might we might not want to see um, that we might that are hand, that are man made that are commercial um, that are ugly even uh, and forces us to, to to acknowledge them and so it's that acknowledgement that I'm that I'm looking for in this ontographic method. Uh, this is a little bit different than you know like what, what Graham Harmon means by ontography, which is a kind of reflection on on his four part understanding of the split being of sensual and real objects. And the word ontography also has at least a few other historical precedents, um, you know, seeming to, to refer to, um, um, you know, kind of a way of, of, uh, of, of capturing geography and, and, and so forth. But to, to me, the, the idea is um, how, can we, uh, how can we record the fullness of being and, and kind of just let it, let it um, overwhelm us? So you introduce in the um, in the context of describing these modes of ontographical cataloging, as you call them in the book, you talk specifically about lists and use the language uh, Latour litanies, which I love, which comes up um, over and over again. Um, so this is something that I think STS scholars who are familiar with these lists of 
things and objects in Latour will immediately grasp onto and understand what you mean. Um, right, right. One of the things that I really love about this chapter is that you're not just exploring um, ontography, but you're also giving an example and sort of practicing in the chapter an example of an ontography with this juxtaposition of kinds of media and kinds of projects that we may not otherwise think of together. So you've already mentioned Stephen Shore's photography. You talk about ghost stories, Brazilian bossa nova, visual ontographs, exploded view diagrams, a game called In a Pickle, and a game that, or video game that I want to ask you to describe a little bit. This is a game called Scribble Knots, which is yeah. just on its own fascinating. So can you right. use Scribble Knots as an example of what's going on here as an ontography? Yeah, Scribble Knots is, uh, is a game that came out a few years ago, and there have been a few different releases of it. But you've got this little character in a world, and uh, and he's got puzzles to solve. He's got to you know reach a particular point or you know save a kitten from a tree or something. But the way that you play the game is you you write in words, uh, and the words are made into objects in the in the game itself. So you could write ladder, and it would give you a ladder, or ninja, and it would give you ninja, or almost anything you can think of. It's actually quite remarkable. There are tens of thousands of words that the game understands, and, you know, sometimes it translates them into common common objects that are shared between multiple words. Um, but it's a, it's a remarkable and unusual um, uh, uh, piece of media on its own. Uh, but what you find yourself doing when, when you play this game, you have a problem, and, you know, there's a million ways of, of solving it. And so the game becomes one of kind of thinking about what you want to um, encant, uh, which things you're intrigued by or want to see in the world, and then the combinations of them and all the different permutations of objects working together that you can kind of literally play with um, that, that then take take on a life. They, they, they can animate themselves in, in this experience. Um, you know, while the creators were not thinking of it as a, as a kind of metaphysics uh, game, uh, it, it gives us one example of, of how we can explore that depth of being by having this, this kind of big uh, capacity, this, this, this huge bucket of different, of different terms that, um, that can be um, invoked. And, and then we can, we can sort of visit with them for a while. So, you know, that, that idea of like, um, the bestiary or the zoo um, or the safari. I mean, those metaphors, I think, are very apt for for this work in general and maybe for ontography in particular, that you're sort of respectfully at a distance observing and appreciating um, uh, uh, some small segment um, of the world, and and you're doing so without an interest in intervening even. And the third chapter actually talks at some length about what it might mean and what it might look like to actually do that and what the kinds of problems are that are inherent in trying to have this kind of distant, respectful relationship toward and also understanding of things, units in the world. Chapter three is called Metaphorism, and it opens with um, a discussion of Thomas Nagel's 1974 essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat?, which really raises the issue, how do we get at the experiences of others and especially perhaps non-humans? Now, this leads you into some really fascinating examples, and I wish we had time to talk about all of them. Um, so I'll just kind of try to raise what I take to be one of the central issues in this chapter, and that is your point that we can deploy metaphor itself as a way, as you put it, to grasp alien objects, perceptions of one another. And you make a point here not only that that deploying metaphor is a way to grasp alien objects' perception of one another so that this can help us get at, additionally, the problem of the ethics of objects. So can you talk a little bit about metaphorism, how this functions as a way to get at um, potentially alien objects' perceptions of one another, and how this relates to an ethics of objects? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot here. So, uh, you know, Nagel's argument is basically, you know, that, that if, you, if you ask what it's like to be a bat, you can describe sort of the, you know, the science of the matter. You can describe echolocation and how it works. And you can draw diagrams and you can think through it. And you can even possibly understand it to some extent. But that understanding has nothing to do with what it's actually like to be a bat, what it's like to perceive the, the, in, in the way that a, that a bat does. Um, and th- this argument seems right to me. Right? That it, it, there, there is a difference between describing something and, uh, and experiencing it. Uh, now, if we extend that to just about anything, you know, then, then we, we have to admit that, wow, not, it's not just bats. Um, it's that we have, limited, uh, uh, we have limited access to the understanding of the experience of 
of anything, anything at all. And that not only do we have limited access, but also other entities have that same are in that same condition. So the wall of the of the cave is is um, subject to the same relationship with the bat that the bat is with the with the wall of the cave. And you could ask, like, what is it like to be a cave wall? And you would also have no answers. So in order to overcome this problem of not being able to answer the question, what is it like to be a bat or a cave um, or, or, a, or, a, or a, you know, a, a bee or a, or a jumbo jet or, a, or, or anything at all, um, we have to deploy a metaphor that, that we have to sort of just try to trace the edges of what we can tell about the, uh, the operations of these units. And from that knowledge, from that knowledge, which can be um, poetic or, or scientific or, 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 or come from almost anywhere, from that evidence, then we build these accounts. Uh, and those accounts are, um, are, are metaphorical by, by their nature. So you know, I can try to describe what it's like to be a bat in terms of, uh, of sonar, or about how you can close your eyes and listen to sound bouncing off the walls. Um, it's a little harder when I start talking about non, uh, non-living entities. You know, what is it like to be my coffee cup? Well, it's hard to know even where to start. And so this exercise of, of, um, of, of metaphorizing um, uh, entities in order to get uh, – a limited access to the notion of their experience. Uh, this this practice is one that not only is only accessible through kind of a poetic speech or, or a meta- metaphorical speech, but that demands it and therefore encourages us to embrace that kind of process um, because we can't do it rationally. We can't sort of just it, as long as as long as we can't describe things and and access the the experience of something else. Then we might as well go to to uh, more imaginative lengths in order to try to accomplish uh, at least part of that um, uh, part of that goal in in characterizing how we might be able to understand a little bit about the experience of something else in terms of something that um, that we do that we do understand um, and you know that 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 process is um, if you kind of reflect back to the idea of correlationism strictly speaking I'm not saying that. Um, the, that the correlation is wrong, but rather that there are, are infinite correlations. Right? It's, it's, not, it's not that I can't get outside my own head exactly. It's that everything is somewhat stuck in its own being and so has to, has to encounter the things that it encounters and make sense of them according to um, its own sense of the world. Now, given that I also don't have any sense of what the coffee cup sense of the world might even mean, I, I end up sort of kind of chaining these, these metaphors together, you know, and, and you can imagine a, a kind of a kind of process by which I, I, I wish I did this more effectively in the book, but, but if I don't, you know, how, how would you sort of sort of run this this chain of experiences in which you're 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 leading from one to the other to the other and, and drawing a kind of picture or painting a, a, a kind of a, a kind of scene in which uh, uh, a, a series of entities are, are engaging with one another on their own terms. Uh, it's a very challenging process and, and one that I only, I think, scratched the surface of in making a suggestion as to how we might begin uh, to characterize that experience. This is kind of the heart of the book, too. This is the phenomenology part of the book, right? The, the experience of things um, as unique and different from uh, the experience of one thing as unique and different from the experience of another. So if I try to turn that into um, uh, an answer to your question about ethics, uh, this has been easily the most um, controversial part of the book for reasons I guess I should have anticipated. Um, It seems to me that if we don't understand what it's like to be something else, then it is very difficult, if not impossible, for us to make moral judgments on their behalf. Um, What we can do is we can make moral judgments within the inside of objects. So when we are within the object that we call um, society or, or a particular culture or a particular community or a family, um, etc., then we can feel confident that, um, that we understand the, the, the kind of moral and ethical structures that we've erected uh, because we're, we're on the inside of that thing. We, we, can, we, have, we, we are in direct contact with it. But uh, when, we, when we leave, when we leave that, that direct contact, which we do constantly and all the time, all we're really doing is projecting our own favorite um, ethical position onto other things and then patting ourselves on the back for being true uh, to the ethical commitment that we, that we decided uh, to adopt. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the challenge here is not to say that, well, we can't do anything. We can't ever know what is right to do, so let's do nothing. But rather to acknowledge that when we do uh, uh, draw up ethical um, 
systems and when we make ethical conclusions. Um, let's say about um, you know whether or not we should uh, uh, we should uh, uh, burn fossil fuels or, or, or whether we should uh, eat animals or what have you. Um, that we are really not doing so on behalf of those of those other entities. That we are doing them. We are doing so on behalf of ourselves. Uh, and so this is a real challenge to um, to ethics in general. To think that um, when when we exercise ethics, we are always exercising it within uh, one or more uh, deeply human centered contexts. And if we wanted to um, uh, to issue ethical judgment outside of them, we would have to somehow imagine metaphorically. We would have to characterize what an ethics of, you know, ecology or an ethics of coffee um, or an ethics of kittens or what have you would look like. And this is work that I don't think that we've done effectively almost anywhere. Um, thank you. Now, one of the examples, I just don't, I don't want you to talk too much about it um, because I, I want to give us time to move on to carpentry, but one of the examples that you mentioned in this part of the book, I just want to name for listeners because it also happens to be one of my favorite books, and this is Ben Marcus's The Age of Wire and String. Right. So I've said it. Everyone listening to this, go read Ben Marcus's The Age of Wire and String after you read Alien Phenomenology. It's an amazing um, – it's an amazing uh, – not I, you know, the causality is in the wrong way for me to say it's an attempt to do exactly what you've described, because you know clearly the, the the relationship is more complicated than that. But it's a really amazing example of an attempt to work in the same universe that you're talking about um, in this chapter in your description of sort of trying to get at what it might mean to explode and rethink on the level of different objects. Uh, it's a really amazing book. Right. Yeah, it's a great book. Um, so which brings us to, um, as you put it, I think, in the book, once we're done nodding at Whitehead and Latour, what do we do? So how do we turn this into a kind of practice, and how do we relate this to the kind of practice that is normally acknowledged, done, um, that dominates scholarly work and the work of the philosopher and also the work of other people practicing in other humanistic fields? Chapter 4 talks about what you call carpentry, and this both takes on and, and kind of uh, talks about the domination of scholarship by the practice of writing. Um, so you ask a question here, must scholarly productivity take the written form? This is something that anyone working in the academic humanities is going to sympathize with and hopefully will have considered. And um, it, it's, it's meaningful to a lot of us working in a lot of different fields. You introduce here the idea of carpentry as the practice of artifacts as a philosophical practice. You talked about carpentry as philosophical lab equipment. So can you talk about that a little bit and um, maybe give an example or two from your own work? And you describe that here in the book to demonstrate and give an example of, you know, what does it mean to practice carpentry as a philosopher and how, how might that help us understand um, ourselves, our work, the work we work on, the objects we work on in a different way? Right. Yeah. And, and the, the carpentry idea is, is, is relatively simple at its base. It's, it's the, you know, the notion that if you take a practice like philosophy, then it could be expressed uh, in, in myriad material forms. One of those is writing. Um, I'm a fan of writing. We don't need to give up writing. But what else could we do? What else could we make? And, and, and mostly, why would we only make one thing? So there's a kind of performance of, of, of the, the, you know, the flat ontological position here, that if we hold if we hold writing to be the, the top-level uh, philosophical uh, object of output, uh, the, uh, the top-level object of philosophical output, um, then what are we missing? And we don't know what we're missing, actually, because uh, we're too obsessed with, with writing ideas down uh, to look up and see. Now, you know, as far as, as, far as examples go, I think when, I mean, when I wrote the book, you know, I, I, I took some examples from my own practice and from, um, from the work of some colleagues of, uh, of mine. Um, one of the things that I, I had made and discussed in the book is a, a kind of attempt to, um, to actually display, so to make visible this weird relationship between the Atari and the television that I was mentioning earlier. Um, I also tried to take that idea of the Latour litany and build a little machine that called the Latour Littonizer that uh, produces uh, Latour style lists of things, pulling them at, at, at random from uh, uh, Wikipedia's uh, database of 
of entries and you end up with these kind of luxurious lists that have things that you didn't you didn't human design you know latour's lists are are very clearly designed and when and when you take away that human design element uh, something else kind of happens you see you see juxtapositions you wouldn't see before so that's an example of a of a kind of carpentered ontography right um but then there are other examples especially since the publication of the book uh this this work has influenced um, kind of I don't know if I'll call them ordinary folks, but for folks who wouldn't wouldn't self identify as as philosophers, I have a number of friends, um, uh, some of whom work in TV writing and in and in computing, who um, are, are really interested in uh, in carpentry as a way of understanding the world differently than they would be able to uh, uh, under ordinary circumstances. Uh, w- one example that I just saw this week, uh, a, a colleague of mine made a a, a Twitter. A Twitter bot, you know, like a, like a little robotic um, automated Twitter account um, that was uh, that was kind of intervening in, in the operation of, of, of a popular hashtag and, and trying to trying to kind of find the edges of what was possible in the, in the community of, of, of individuals uh, playing, you know, making this this sort of one line joke on on Twitter. Um, and you know, that, it's a it's a question that uh, that actually occurred to the to the creator is okay, well. You know, you kind of how does this community work, or how could I how can I investigate the uh, the way that they're um, that they're that they're thinking about making jokes about movies or whatever it was? I can make a I can make a little a little machine that does that work for me. Uh, or another one of my colleagues has made a similar kind of machine that that makes um, presentations, makes like slideshow, you know, PowerPoint style slideshow presentations, uh, pulls the images down and kind of kind of assembles them into this this machine made talk and then you have to sort of decide what to do with that material you know like if you allow the talk to to run you rather than you running the talk kind of what, what does it look like um you know some of these examples um well many of the examples are computational um because i i work with computing and a lot of the folks i hang out with work with computing but by no means do they have to be and one of the invitations for, for carpentry is that uh, we don't even know all of the materials out of which we could make um philosophical inquiry um, let's go ahead and figure that out. That's fabulous. I would, I would actually love to see that PowerPoint slide generator. That seems I would love to go to that conference. Actually, right? It seems yeah, to be a, a, much conference, more a conference of talks by computers. That's right. <laughs> fabulous. Um, so there are other um, examples in that chapter that are really great, and I'll just um, mention for listeners just to to name it and to shine a light on it. Um, you talk about this Tableau machine um, as a uh, this kind of. Uh, kind of carpentry that transforms, as you put it, ordinary family residences into cyborg homes. And it's a really fascinating example there that I'll just highlight for listeners to go check that out in chapter four. So this brings us to chapter five. This is the final chapter of the book, and it's a chapter called Wonder. The chapter opens by considering the TV show The Wire and contrasts it with the kind of work done by another exploration of structures of Baltimore, which is Ace of Cakes. Um, you, can you talk a little bit about that? What, what does this contrast do for the kind of work that you're doing in this chapter? Um, and how does this help us understand something about um, the kind of practices or the kind of carpentry that you're urging us to think through? Yeah, and you know, in, in some ways, this is just a restatement of, of you know where I started the book, you know, which is that we're we're, we're obsessed with with human agency and human behavior and human societies, and so we miss all this other stuff while we're not looking at it. You know, so The Wire, this television show that many people consider to be you know the best television show ever made, and it's so complex and it's got all sorts of things you know inter- intermingling, but really at, at its heart, all of those things uh, end up being. Uh, human behavior and uh, uh, individual human behavior as it relates to social structures. Um, so even within the wire, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, uh, the, the specifics of, 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 uh, of specific drugs or, or, of, or, of, or of mass transit or of, um, or of shipyards, right? those things appear in the, in the show, but only as these kind of props uh, for, for for the human actors that, that carry out the drama, uh, whereas a, a, a show like Ace of Cakes, which I did pick because you know it takes place in, in, in Baltimore, I guess it's no longer on the air. Um, you know the the thing that's being created are cakes, and so this this kind of obsession in exactly the opposite direction um, from a bakery, you know, set in the same neighborhoods that are depicted in The Wire that that that, that look at the world in just the reverse way uh, in terms of how can we construct this 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 object called a cake that that also um, uh, 
represents some other object, you know, like a cake that, that looks like a boat or, you know, a cake that, um, uh, that that's also a, a golf course or all the kind of crazy cakes they make on these, on these shows. And the fact that we're so tempted to hold the, um, the wire as an example of media – uh, kind of at a higher level than Ace of Cakes, right? This, this seems uh, uncontroversial. That everyone would say, well, The Wire is a kind of better show, a more sophisticated show, uh, a more serious show than, than Ace of Cakes. Uh, but what if that's wrong? You know, what if, what if all that it is is it's a more human-centered show? Uh, and in fact, we're missing all of the, all of the goodies, so to speak, um, that we get from paying deep and intimate and systemic attention to something like Cakes uh, in the same way that The Wire pays deep and, and intimate attention to the, uh, the, the I- interrelated um, social systems of, of Baltimore. So in, in the course of this chapter, you also talk about Alton Brown's Good Eats. You could talk about wonder. This is actually the, you know, the focus of the chapter. You talk about teaching about Atari. Um, you talk about the native logics of objects. But finally, um, when you get to the end of this chapter, and this is the last question I want to ask you before we wrap up, you end with Bukowski. Can you talk about why Bukowski? And you know, it's, a, it's a really significant, this is the last thing that yeah. the reader's going to see. Um, can you talk about the significance of Bukowski? Yeah, there's this, uh, no one's asked me about this before. Um, th- there's a secret. Uh, it's not that, it's an obvious secret. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, this, this poem um, is the first few lines um, of uh a poem called a Bukowski poem called 16-bit Intel 8088 chip. Um, and it's in a collection called You Get So Alone at Times That It Just Makes Sense. Uh, and, you know, most of the poem – actually, I'm sorry. I said it was the start. It's the very end uh, of, a, uh, of the poem, most of which is a, a, a very humorous uh, reflection on trying to make one computer work with another. And, you know, you have to format your disk in this way, and then you can't read the Apple disk on the Tandy and so forth. Um, and so it goes through this kind of litany of, 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 of the wackinesses of, of, of using personal computers um, in, the, in the 1980s. Uh, and then ends, you know, sort of with this, with this, this sort of meanwhile, which is a theme of my book, ends with this, you know, this, this kind of universal um, um, uh, contrast, right? You know, the, the wind still blows over Savannah and in the spring, the turkey buzzard struts and flounces before its hens. And I just, I just love the fact that, um, that encoded in that little excerpt that I chose is all of the stuff that's missing too, which is, you know, all, the, all of my interest in computing and like kind of my attempt to connect that work with philosophy and um, all the stuff that was always happening all at once and that, that's there, that's always there um, that we don't see. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a trick uh, epigraph, if you will. Um, but I also just thought it was uh, uh, even absent that, 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 that small secret about the poem, um, that it's really a very different kind of poem than it seems to be. Um, I, 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 thought it, I thought it had the right tone, you know, the right tone to end the book on, that, um, that, that yet there's more, yet there's more. Um, and that yet there's more has um, a kind of artistic flourish and merit to it. Um, and that we don't even need to say anything else about it. We know it's there and we can sort of just nod and, and shut up. And in fact, um, you're saying that can make us think of the whole book. I mean, it make us, it, for me, is an invitation to look back at the whole book that you've written as a philosophy of meanwhile. Yeah, that that's, um, I mean, it's a theme that, that, that comes up again and again. And, um, you know, I, I, I guess one of the things I like about this book, one of the things I'm proud of is that um, stuff that seems like it's just a, um, a kind of off-handed remark turns out to be very important. You know, and so this this kind of meanwhile business turns out to be really important. You know, it's a fundamental um, uh, principle of uh, of the philosophy I'm laying out. But when you read it the first time, it just sounds like a, a, a kind of quip. Well, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me, Ian. There's so much more that we could talk about. Parts and holes. Meanwhile, they might be giants, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> Um, but I don't want to take up uh, too much more of your time. But given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about of the many, many things that are so great about the book that we didn't talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, especially for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book? Yeah, I mean, one thing I, one thing I guess I'd like to mention is that uh, despite this whole carpentry thing and that you know, we, should, we should do things other than writing or we should at least think about doing things other than writing – um, this is a book that um, I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably proud of how it turned out as writing. Uh, and it, it was a book that when I was writing it and then when I was editing it, I, I felt like a, a writer at times rather than like a, 
scholar or like a philosopher. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the follow-up that, I mean, there's a number of follow-ups that, that I'm considering, but the, the direct follow-up to this book, um, I, I don't think is going to be philosophy at all. I think it'll just be fiction. And, and I would really, really like to capture the feeling that I had writing certain, certain excerpts in this book. The first few pages are, um, I think really hold up as writing, you know, outside of any particular context. And, and and some parts of the the end of the book too. So you know this this idea of um, of aesthetics uh, being kind of a first philosophy is something that comes up often in discussions of object oriented thinking. And I guess I just wanted to highlight that you know for me as a writer, it's something I think about a lot now. I think about the craft of writing, and I, I want to be a better writer, and I want to think of myself as a writer um, first when I'm writing, not as a scholar who happens to be writing or, 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 a, or a philosopher whose only choice is, is to write, that that's a deliberate choice now. And that, that, that when I make that choice deliberately, um, I have to take seriously the, the, the craft practice of writing. Well, I'll say just to confirm that, that that really comes out in the book. And in fact, there's a whole bunch of things I didn't ask you about that. As I was making notes um, for our conversation, I kept a list of some of my favorite quotes. And one of them involved a goldfish sphincter. Um, there are lots of those. So this is just to confirm. I'm really, really glad to hear that you're working or thinking of a follow-up on fiction because it's, it's yeah. really one of the strengths of the book. So Thanks. given that, um, uh, my last question, for you is precisely that. What's next for you? What project or projects are you working on that are inspiring you? And, and related to what you just said, um, are you working on a f- already a fiction follow-up to this? And what might that look like? I, uh, I've, I've start, I, I'm writing a book this year that, that's, that's not really related. I mean, it is related, but it's not directly related. It's a, it's a book on, on constraint and creativity. Um, and uh, uh, that'll be out, I don't know, 2014, 2015, or, or, or something. So it, it is related in the sense that um, I'm thinking about this kind of this kind of uh, strong attention to things and, and, and letting them uh, inspire and um, and affect the way that we act and, and behave and think about the world. But um, but it's it's also much more related to uh, my my work in media studies than my work in philosophy. As far as the follow up, the kind of true um, spiritual successor to alien phenomenology, I've done some writing. Um, and it's, um, I don't know, it's really hard. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's really tough writing because it's, what I'm trying to do is to kind of uh, take this invitation that I made in, in alien phenomenology and, and do this, you know, metaphoristic um, experimental exploration of, of what it's like to be something else and, and to try that on a number of different things. Uh, and so far what I've been doing is kind of keeping notebooks of, um, of objects I find when I travel um, to different places that catch my eye, some of which are, you know, completely mundane and others which, of, of which connect more directly to, to the, the places I find myself. Um, so I, I hope that someday that will turn into um, actual work that I can share with the world. For now, I feel like, um, I feel like I don't know. Um, I don't know if it will or if it won't, but I'm, 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 I'm trying uh, to let it, uh, to let it uh, flourish, in, insofar as uh, as it's under my control, to, uh, to to work on that on that on that project. That, that I definitely think I'm not going to write another philosophy book. I mean, there was some there was some question. I mean, I may write another philosophy book someday, but I'm not going to do that immediately. There was some you know question of whether I do like alien ethics and you know kind of take up this question of of, uh, of ethics that we were discussing earlier and give that the full treatment. Um, for a while, I thought, well, that, that sounds interesting. Maybe I'll do that. But, but now I'm, I'm pretty confident that I have no plans to do that. And, and instead, I'm going to try to write uh, th- this, uh, this ontography of things from a, a metaphorical perspective. And hey, we'll see. Um, if it worked, it would work as philosophy and as literature. And, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure if I have it in me. I don't know if I have the, the skill to do it. Um, but I'm going to give it a go. Oh, you have it in you, and I will look forward to reading that. Um, so, Ian, thank you so much. Best of luck on the new projects. Congratulations on this project, and it was really a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>